City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. OK, acres and acres of tar and cement, and I'm sitting here uh, looking quite mute or sounding quite mute because I wasn't saying anything. But uh, it is City Limits, and it's the third Wednesday of the month. It's our normal housing day. We talked housing last week, of course. Uh, but today we're moving on, and... Um, We've got Catherine, the, uh, who's been on the last couple of months. Catherine, who's a um, public housing tenant. She's going to come on and talk about aspects of public housing. We've also got Howard and um, Jack from P- People for Public Housing coming on and Shane McGrath from Housing for the Aged Action Group. So quite a full morning. And we'll start that segment at about uh, 9.20 or so. And uh, <clears throat> here we are all in lockdown. And I'm Kevin Healy. We've got Zeb Peak with us. We've got Karina with us. And we're all... Um, how are you all anyway? How are we? Oh, good. Kind Look, while you're telling us how you are, I'll pour some tea. Everyone <laughs> That'd want be tea? Great. Yeah, I'd love the tea. Right. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm well. Just ran from the tram to, to here, so I'm a little bit out of breath. But <laughs> apart from that, ready to go. Uh, I, I figured the, the forecast was such I could ride the bike today. You've got to keep talking because I've, I've got to hand two cups over this screen here, you see. <clears throat> so keep talking. Yeah, okay. Well... Let me see what news I found. Actually, um, I found it. I was just listening back to the episode you did last week in your uh, little discussion about how um, the the Herald Sun was framing the the COVID problem as like we've got to you know have a war on this um, disease, and it's just it's just interesting how I, I feel like ever since well maybe there was this framing used a lot before, but the first like major time that I can think of is when people started using like the war on drugs um people started just like (laughs) waging war on all of these things that uh before no one had thought to wage war on and it it just became this like term that people use to (laughs) as like some sort of good thing um to get rid of a bad thing war is good Yes, <coughs> More yes. is good. <coughs> That's the point. And in fact, um, Peter Dutton's telling us that he wants one with China and he's telling us it's bloody good. But he wants peace as well. Yes, but somehow. Peace, peace, war, peace yeah. after war. War is peace. That's the point. Yes, yeah. But I, I thought, well, I thought this week an interesting one was um, the, the um, page yesterday, the world page on um, the Herald Sun yesterday. Let's kick off with the Herald Sun as usual. Because they found the two most... Well, the three perhaps most um, important stories across the whole world yesterday, their world page, mm-hmm. the head story was Furious Britney Quits Music Blames Family. Now, there's a story for you. <laughs> Accused sex fixer a tyrant. But below that, a big picture. And then Queen returns to check on her horses. And um, Oh, my God. Yes, now this, is, this is the big story of the day, the big yep. world story in the whole world. The Queen has returned to her Sandringham estate for the first time since the death of the Duke of E. 
The 95-year-old was seen wearing a white top adorned with pink roses and a green gilet as she drove around Wood, Wood Farm Cottage on the Norwich property. She was pictured driving, etc. So that really is, isn't that critical world news yesterday? Yeah, this that's is it. the breaking news of that we need to Of all the things happening in the world, of. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good on, good on the Herald Sun. Um, the one I found interesting, you mentioned about war. Um, there's currently these these war exercises going on up in up Queensland, the ones we have regularly, mm. and they're upset that China has come and watching them. Now, you know, I think America, particularly and Australia, get upset if Chinese ships uh, sail in Chinese p- p- waters. I mean, because. Um, <laughs> You know, they, they get in the way of American ships sailing in Chinese waters, for God's sake. <laughs> um, but uh, the, uh, Peter went and watched this live firing exercise over the weekend and had a great time watching it, Peter Dutton, the now yeah, Minister yeah. for Offence. And he said the only objective for Australia is to have, have peace within our region. See, he wants peace. Our partnership with America, with Japan, with the United Kingdom, with New Zealand and with others in the Indo-Pacific region should send a strong message to the Communist Party. Ha-ha, who's he talking about here? Mm. And others that we have a great capacity, we have a great uh, um, deterrence and we will do whatever it takes to keep peace in our region, which involves, of course, going to war. And he said also, this sends a message to our friends and to our foes that we have the deepest relationship with the United States. So isn't that great to see? Mm, Yes, very promising. He's he's very dangerous, that man. I mean, he he was probably... Where is he more dangerous, minister for keeping refugees locked up or minister for going to war? I mean, it's a touch point. It's touch and go, isn't it? he also, though, a couple of weeks ago, I think showing sort of what sort of person he is, he ordered his department and serving military personnel to stop pursuing a woke agenda. Woke's become a really in word, hasn't it, in the last year or so? But anyway, a woke agenda after the defence held morning teas where staff were, uh, wore rainbow clothing to mark the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Interphobia and Transphobia. And so Peter thought that was quite terrible. Defence represents the people of Australia and must at all times be focused on our primary mission, which, of course, is to kill people, mm-hmm. um, to protect Australia's national... Oh, that's what we have to do, Australia's national security interests. We must not be putting effort into matters that distract from this. To meet these important aims, changing language protocols and these events such as morning teas where personnel are encouraged to where particular clothes and celebrations are not required and should cease. We have made it clear, etc., etc. So Pete's against all that as well. Yeah, he's soon going to be waging war on, on woke. Well, on woke and on, presumably on um, people who, are, who, who want to exercise their, their, whatever their sexual preference is, which is their business, but not yes. Pete, Pete thinks it's not theirs. Um, now, also, we mentioned um, a while ago that uh, the Fair Work Commission had, had deemed that a worker for Deliveroo was in fact a worker for Deliveroo cause, because for the simple reason that the worker worked for Deliveroo. But mm-hmm. Deliveroo doesn't think the worker does work for Deliveroo. And so it's appealed the decision. And they, they say, in fact, that the decision shows the, the commissioner who gave the decision had gone off the rails. He was completely wrong. The, the, the appeal, and they said the appeal could have broad implications for whether the gig economy must pay minimum pay and conditions and will test, test the full bench uh, decision. 
um, that another Uber, that a Uber Eats rider was also not an employee, was was not an employee, but that this this was this has turned that one around. And uh, it's interesting the the comment the appeal could have broad um, implications for whether the gig economy pays minimum wage and conditions. Well, that's what that concerns them, of course, because yeah. they don't. Yeah. Um, and what they're really fighting is the right not to pay minimum pay and conditions. Yeah. And at the, so they, they're like claiming that their workers are micro entrepreneurs or some such. So they're sort of. Well, they, their argument is that they work for different delivery people, so therefore they're not their direct employees and all that. Yeah. Sort of crap. Yeah. yeah. Um, another one, Zeb, I found interesting because the Financial Review is one of the great supporters of the fact that we should keep the economy open and lockdowns are really bad because they hurt the economy and we have to balance the number of people who get ill or die versus the impact on the economy and the mm. economy should win in that situation as far of as course. they're concerned. Yes. Uh, and of course, that for that reason, Gladys Berejiklian's been a, a real hero of theirs because she hasn't locked out, and Victoria's been absolute bogeyman because it has locked down, or mm-hmm. even a bogey woman, I suppose you could have. Um, and so, um, so it's interesting that now that she's locked down, they've um, they've turned on her a bit. It's, um, Berejiklian loses nerve at construction expense, and they, there's a, there's a article by one of their feature writers saying that the construction industry should be left should be left open. Now this is also interesting because apart from supporting keeping things open, the Fin Review is totally opposed to the CFMEU. Mm-hmm. And any time it goes to court or any time it does anything, the Fin Review attacks it, it reports the court cases, it reports the judges saying how totally lawless and ha- what disrespect for the law they have. Um, quotes the millions they get fined and the, the, the thousands of dollar fines to individual workers and, and, and organisers as well, mainly around issues to do either with safety issues or a picket line, with picket lines now being illegal, of course, or calling someone, dare you say it, that illegal term a scab, for God's sake, okay. how awful. Um, so it, does, so it, it attacks that union regularly, but when it suits it, this is interesting. This article, Berejiklian loses nerve at construction's expense, and it points out the construction industry is really very safe. It takes all the precautions, and it should oh. be left open. But then it says, then it says, the state's biggest construction companies, etc., um, and they have they have incredible safety things. And the reason they have incredible safety things, the very first reason is. Thanks to strong unions. Well, they even now, this yeah, is, these are the same okay. people who say these same strong unions are illegal, break the law, have no respect for the law, and suddenly, when they want to argue that way, they're strong and good. Yeah. Yes. Well, we should, maybe we should have more lockdowns. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but anyway, suddenly unions are good. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, amazing. <laughs> I guess, yeah, when it suits them, anything, they can say anything. <laughs> That's right. Well, this editorial the same day, just you know, won't, no need to read on, but the headline was PM should set a vaccine market to reopen Australia. So their big concern is to get business back going and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and of course yeah. there was that uh, the, the sort of discussion recently about Kevin Rudd's involvement in uh, the vaccine procurement. That's right. Uh, which yes. is... But he had no, according to the government, he had no impact, whatever. And he probably didn't, actually. Yeah, the point. but he probably wants to keep that ambiguous, you know. 
Yeah, little yeah. Kebby. Um, <laughs> and oh, I mentioned, of course, that when when the union gets gets dragged up before the courts, when it's really bad and not good, as it is this week, um, then individuals also, individual workers, individual organisers also face very heavy fines. Now, the Haynes Royal Commission into Banking, it recommended that the... Um, it recommended that the, fi- the financial services ex- um, executives that the 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 what's called the um, banking and accountability regime be changed um, to make it make it stronger. So the government is actually bringing in a new law. It's just drafted a new law to follow up on that. But but the old one, which he wanted replaced had big fines for not just the companies themselves, financial service companies themselves that break the law, but fines of up to a million dollars for individuals who also are involved. So it's same as with unions who individuals can be fined. But in the draft legislation, the government has dropped the fines for individuals. So now building workers can get fined, Mm -hmm. but executives in financial institutions who break the law can't be fined individually under this new law. Okay. And Macquarie University professor and risk culture expert Elizabeth Sheedy said the removal of individual penalties of up to a million under the draft was disappointing and a missed opportunity. It's difficult to understand why it has gone down this path and the most obvious explanation is that there has been a lot of lobbying from the industry. Um, and indeed, um, the Financial Review points out intense lobbying by the big four banks to water down the legislation was revealed last year uh, when the banks each sent representatives to a series of briefings held by Treasury with instructions to push back against the fines, and people involved with the Royal Commission say that it certainly doesn't go anywhere as far as Hain had intended. Um, and um, the but getting rid of the fines went further than Hain intended. But all, what they've also done is now where the old law didn't, they're now including superannuation funds in this. So they're really desperate to get superannuation funds. So they're actually now including superannuation funds under this, and the super funds say, well, this is ridiculous because um, there's no history of misconduct with superannuation. And um, anyway, it's, it's, so it's good to see the government being at least consistent and doing what it does. Mm-hmm. Okay, look, we're going to take a break. We'll come back and we're going to talk to uh, public housing worker Catherine. Public housing uh, tenant Catherine. Get it right, Kevin. <laughs> armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter.
Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Okay, on the line we have Catherine Murdoch, who's a resident in public housing. Catherine, I assume you're also in groups like Friends of Public Housing, are you? I am connected to Defend and Extend Public Housing, and good right. morning to you both. <laughs> morning. Good morning. And I guess um, with lockdown, I'm just thinking uh, last time with lockdown, of course, we had that terrible experience at North Melbourne, and there's still legal action ar- around that following what happened. But um, where you are, um, what's the impact of, of lockdown in terms of the public housing? Where I am, the impact, as I talked about last time, has been ongoing in terms of no communal spaces reopening or access to hot meals and facilities. Um, dramatically, I think everyone is um, very pensive. There's less movement, less communication and engaging in any spaces. For yeah. um, so people living in the, you know, the public housing towers, I think every day there is a fear... Um, that you could be locked down again and that it could occur. So I know from friends who live in those environments that it re-traumatises them. Mm. Uh, Um, Whether they were locked down last year or not, there's still that fear every day. Um, And I know um, that one of the residents that was impacted last year is still asking the question, who had the power to make that happen and, and why did it happen to us? Yeah, it's a good question, I think, and that's something that um, many of the actions currently being taken are, are on about, really. Um, Catherine, you mentioned about um, hot meals and facilities. What do you mean by that? Um, in terms of a communal area where people can go and have a coffee, um, can sit, read, um, access to um, rooms with the internet and computer terminals, to libraries that are on site, and meals that would be served, hot meals served weekly. So that that happens on where you where you are. That happens, yes, and in um, most public housing spaces, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We mentioned last week um, that back and back before when Barry Pullen finished it up when he was housing minister in this state, but way way back, every public housing um, estate. Had a had a pay, fully paid worker by the state on it to um, to work with residents and to to handle any problems they had, and that was cut out by a government back then. Um, that sort of thing now would be very useful, wouldn't it? Absolutely, I think it would be mandatory, um, and yeah, it's not there. Um, 
you know, you can connect with the people that you know around you on your floor and try and check in on people and see how they're going, you know, just knocking on doors. Um, but, you know, a lot of fear, especially for people that are older, um, people with mobility issues. And then also where I live, um, you know, most of the people, English is a second language, I would say for 70%, and 50% don't speak English. Um, so the limited communication that comes out, not everyone has access to. Mm. Yeah, and that's definitely been a difficulty in the past with uh, communicating um, COVID information. And uh, it recently came out on um, the, uh, this is a slightly different topic, but um, the removalists um, that were blamed for, for spreading COVID um, ha- have come forward and, and said that English wasn't their second language and that uh, wasn't their first language and uh, that there was some miscommunication going on there. Um, Karina has just passed me a note as well. Um, she's interested to know about, uh, so there was like an article, um, from when the towers got locked down last year about privatized outsourced cleaning companies, uh, in Mm -hmm. public housing. Um, so what's the, the cleaning situation, um, with regards to COVID, uh, now, do you do you know much about that and if it's adequate, if it's even going on this lockdown? I think that's a really valid point because during this lockdown I haven't seen any increased cleaning. Um, there isn't the same um, presence in terms of hand sanitizer um, and access to those sorts of resources. Um, You know, last year, this time, I was living in community housing and I know that the cleaning um, schedule was... And there were external cleaners who came on site. That was dramatically increased. So we're working six days a week. There were more visits to sites. And I haven't seen that happen um, this year um, during the lockdown in public housing at all. Mm, Okay. Mm. Yeah, talking about people with English as a second language or not much English at all, uh, during the campaigns trying to save the, the the public housing estates that have been knocked over and handed over to the private sector, one of the argu- one of the I think one of the more important points a lot of people raise was that people um, people with English not having English as a second language had people around them who spoke their language, and there was a real community involved and. What happens, of course, when you get that sort of um, so-called redevelopment is those people are dispersed and sent away from each other and um, they really lose their community contact. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I remember speaking to people in Flemington um, when their housing was at risk there about that was the only life they knew. You know, they had moved to a new country. They had tried to... Um, learn a new language. Many people didn't leave home except to work or to shop and any social, any connection they had, often, you know, not with family around them, was within that environment. So, you know, any any fear of change to that just goes to the root core of who you are because that's all you have. Mm. Mm-hmm. Zeb's point about the the um, the two removalists who didn't understand because they didn't have English. 
Um, are you seeing signs of that around you that people without who can't you know perhaps read English particularly well or understand it on radio or television or whatever are having real problems um, understanding what's going on? Absolutely. And for example, I came home one day this week and I saw a maintenance person with a trolley and there was one of the ladies who lives in the building who doesn't speak any English and she was following him and I was trying to ascertain what was what was happening and the maintenance person said to me, she keeps following me around, she doesn't speak any English and I've been to her place and she won't let me do the work because she kept pointing down and I was trying to explain to him that she lived on the floor below and to work out what was going on. Um, so, you know, that was a barrier in that instance. And he wound up by saying, OK, I'll come down with you one more time. But she was just following him around the property from floor to floor. And obviously that dialogue wasn't able to happen. And he just said she can't speak English. And that was it. He'd given up. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just as well on uh, that idea of communities being broken up when, when public housing gets gets demolished. Um mm-hmm. I've heard this this idea, this like rationale for um, demolishing public housing and then rebuilding it with like part public housing, part um, private or uh, <clears throat> part community social. housing, social yeah. housing. Um, mm-hmm. And part of the rationale is this idea of like social mixing, which I'm not even really sure what uh, people mean by that. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit on that and what you think of that um, that sort of rationale that's being pushed. I think that's a really pertinent point. And to be honest with you, you've mm. really got to ask what do they mean by that? Because it is, um, I suppose, a prejudice or there's an understanding there um, that, or an implication that um, the mix of people living within public housing isn't healthy mm-hmm. um, or that it could be, you know, restricted in, in some form. Um, where I'm living at the moment, you know, really diverse group of people, the majority that have been here um, long term um, and... I think that there's, from my personal experience, there's more chance to grow community um, when you have that opportunity to spend time with each other and to really respect and understand where you're all coming from and um, who you are now and how you can support each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... The so like the idea of social mix, sort of also seems to bring some sort of like racist undertones of, or like um, ideas of if uh, like immigrants don't mix with broader communities or something, that's that's a bad thing. And I feel like there might be some sort of white supremacy <laughs> uh, thing going on underneath there, um, but. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that is the implication, isn't it? Because, yeah, that is exactly it. It, It's implying that 
it's not adequate, it's implying that it's inferior in a form and it's not really respecting people for the people that they are. Mm. We're going to have to wind up, unfortunately, Catherine, because we're going to move on to the next guest. But, um, but really, okay. I think that that last point, you know, points out one of the, mm-hmm. the one of the really good things about public housing that people can learn to live together. Absolutely, you know, you're also looking at public housing. We have 24-hour security here, which is an important factor. Um, and just quickly speaking about the COVID vaccine, since I spoke to you last time. Um, CoHealth stepped forward and offered on-site vaccinations. That flyer was distributed in English. And SMSs, we received two SMSs letting us know where the local clinic was and the operational hours. The only question is, that was in English once again. But there's been movement, there's been some change because that offer's been out there for people over 16, but not everyone's had an awareness of it or where their clinic is or perhaps even the ability to get there. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's good. In fact, I'm having my second jab at 10.20 today after the exhibition, after the show. So there you are. Um, There you go. All right. (laughs) Catherine, look, thanks so much for your time again today and we'll talk again. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Catherine Murdoch is a um, a public housing tenant, obviously, and uh, after this break, we're going to get on the line. We're going to have Howard... uh, Howard Morosi and Jack and talk about some of the aspects of what's going on in public housing around Friends of Public Housing. Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. A proud black man Proud black man You should not wonder Strong spirit First Nations issues Families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Lukman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new, modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient and electronic music. Yalla habaybna. Shunatrin. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic mazika. Oh. 
The census is happening this August. Your answers help make a better future for all of us. Like the number of babies, so health services know where we need mums and bubs programs. And the number of people in communities to plan local transport services. You can help tell our story. Look out for instructions on what to do. For more info, visit census.abs.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio on digital and online 3CR Radical Radio. Okay, on the line we've got Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing and we've also got Jack from Friends of Public Housing. And um, Howard, we'll get an update, but I just wanted to run a couple of things past you very quickly. In the last couple of weeks we've had headlines um, saying, in fact, in, in The Age on um, Saturday, July 10, inner-city renters revel in new lows as if rent's gone down. And three days later in the Financial Review, cheaper to buy than rent in thousands of suburbs. So there seems to be great confusion out there about that. But that all leads to the point, of course, that many people can't afford to rent at all. Yeah, uh, well, the, the drop in rent has come mainly in the inner city and the outer suburbs haven't really benefited from it. Like people are moving out of the city. They don't really want to live in the city. And the vacancies are in the... Um, uh, Areas where the students, the overseas students, would have been, but can't, you know, can't come in because of the COVID restriction. So that's that's it's just a, a particular drop in a particular area. It's not a general like Australia's rents generally, uh, and also including Victorian regional areas and out of suburbs have gone up mm. uh, astronomically. That was a separate story. I was, but we won't go to that. But a year that. They're talking about people moving out, but it's forcing rents up in all those areas they want to go to. Yeah, that's right. It just shows again the problems with the private sector because it operates according to supply and demand. So prices get pushed up when there's more demand, uh, whereas it doesn't happen, of course, with public housing. It doesn't always seem to doesn't also seem to work with wages, which are a price of labour. But uh, they don't seem to zoom when the laws of supply and demand come into, put into effect, but then that's another uh, question. No, well, the problem is um, they have a... That's another topic, actually. That's right, that's another <laughs> question, topic, yeah. But if you, keep, if you have a supply of unemployed people, which the Reserve Bank attempts to do, tries to keep unemployment official rate around 5%, uh, then you're going to get uh, downward pressure on wages. Yep. Anyway, um, update us. How, what's, what's the latest news in, in housing area, public housing area? Okay, is Jack there? Because I think Jack can take the lead today. Yep, I'm here. Um, Howard, thanks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the latest update from public housing is there's uh, been a, a fairly major review on by the government. I call it the Social Housing Regulation Review, and um, getting input. So um, we've had an input from Defend and Extend Public Housing, and. Uh, I just draw a couple of um, you know, key points that I um, you know, garnered from the um, input was that the review has no recognition at all about the role of public housing, the historic role of public housing. 
Um, you know, and I remind you that the government considers social housing to be both public and uh, privatised uh, community housing, community housing businesses. So there's absolutely no, no recognition of the role of um, public housing. And that sort of, you know, takes us all the way back to the 1980s when, you know, it all started off jolly happy with community housing. Um, but now, 40, 40 years later from the 1980s, um, uh, you know, our policy has been totally um, compromised by the private sector and it's really now about business, no, not about good intentions. Um, the other issue with the uh, review and its terms of reference is that it's it's using the term social housing to, uh, again, mislead the public because uh, most of the stuff in there is, is really about uh, uh, community housing and, and the interest there. And, you know, and that's not coincidentally, you know, social housing is the term that's favoured by community housing proponents. And, you know, we call out that the government start, stops using that term and if it's referring to public housing courts, so and if it's referring to community housing courts, so it's like talking about apples and oranges. Um, both they're very different things. And then finally, you know, the issue with the review was that it's um uh, a declaration of conflict of interest um, because two of the three members of the review panel have senior backgrounds in community housing. And uh, so, you know, you can just see yet again, the government is just saying, oh, this is a social housing review. It's been run by, you know, two out of the three people running it are, in fact, community housing people. So one would wonder what they're really, really chasing. And just so... Very quickly, the recommendations from the Defend and Extend Public Housing submission was, firstly, stop privatising public housing, what we have left of it, and stop, stop giving away public land to community housing businesses, because that's going on. Um, build enough public housing to meet the needs of the waiting list of about 50,000-plus applications, which represent about 110,000 people. Um, and also then, once you've done that sufficient build, expand public housing for everyone who needs it. It's, it's a bit like uh, having a social conscience akin to healthcare or education. You know, there is a government-provided healthcare and education to anyone who needs it, and so it should be for housing as well, for anyone who needs and wants it. Mm. So there's sort of, that's sort of like the Reader's Digest, very quick review of what, um, what, what the submission there was on about. Yeah, the the chair of that inquiry is Professor David Hayward, isn't it? He is one of them, yeah. Because um, yep. um, he he has a a strong record, of, at least up till now. I hope he maintains it in in opposing privatisation of public services. So we can only hope, I suppose. Well, look, you know, um, you know, I can't, I can't talk about his um, motivations and things, but I, I would be absolutely delighted if. He opposed a privatisation of uh, privatisation of public housing, but 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 I mean the trend has been for the last um, twenty years that in fact there's been little investment in public housing and it's been been investment in community housing. I mean I just got a couple of numbers here, and this comes from the community housing industry itself. Um, back in two thousand and nine, they had there were eleven thousand seven hundred community housing properties in Victoria. And by 2019, that had gone up to 19,200. So it's a pretty sizable mm. growth over 10 years in yep. terms of percentages. 
And in that time, there was zero growth in public housing. So, um, you know, it's, it's just escalating and, and keeps, keeps on going. Um, and, and I sort of saw, I, I sat back and started thinking about, OK, so what's going on with this review? What is really going on? And I know one of the um, major criticisms of um, community housing has been that it's, it's inferior to public housing, charges more, and also has worse terms and conditions. And so, you know, you sort of say, OK, so... Uh, and it actually says it in terms of reference. And they're talking about having a common regulation model for both public housing, community housing and affordable housing. Um, it, it all sounds good. But then I, I, I sat down and thought, well, hang on, what does that really mean, common regulation? So are we going to raise the um, price of uh, public housing to be the same as community housing? I highly doubt it. I mean, that... You know, the world would boil over. That'd be a 20% increase in, in rental immediately. So um, what, what, what are they pushing for? They might be pushing for more more um, uh, you know, more subsidies for um, uh, public housing somewhere through, through the government. Again, I, I find that unlikely. Um, the opposite is, well, hang on, would you reduce the price of community housing to, the, to public housing? So, in other words, the community housing organisations um, uh, lose money and also force them to provide better conditions, i.e., you know, more security of tenure for tenants, etc. Well, that's going to cost as well. So, who's going to pay for it? And I, I really think, well, hang on, there's probably some sort of push going on in here in terms of getting more, in the end, more funding from, um, from the government to, to pay for the costs of actually community housing up to the same level as public housing. So it's actually, if that, if that is the outcome, we're actually seeing privatisation getting even worse. And if, if people think that that's unlikely, just have a think about this very similar um, industry like aged care. It's always crying poor. You know, we never make enough money. We're running on the edge. And I've heard community housing people saying that. And then just they're always sucking government funds dry. And then in the meantime, if you have a look back at it, and we saw it some basils during the um, pandemic last year um, in Melbourne, but, you know, they found out that a whole lot of the government money that was going in there for aged care was, in fact, being transferred to the diocese. Yeah. So it was being transferred to the business, not and away from... Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you know, the people was intended for. So in I both, well, I'm going to say, Jack, in both those cases, of course, if they can't run it as a private business, then it's uh, without government help. Then it's a good argument for saying let the government run the whole show. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we're going to have to wind up. I'm afraid we've got a very tight program today, but we'll give you more time next time, I guess. But uh, mm -hmm. we've got to move on to the Housing with Age Action Group. So we'll. Um, but look, thanks for that. And uh, uh, that that inquiry, people can still make submissions. I assume, can they? Have they? Yeah. Oh, well, that takes back. Then the answer's no. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> All right, look, thanks for your time. Sorry we had to rush you today, but um, we've had a pretty busy time. We had Catherine on as well, of course. Yeah, okay, thanks. Yep. Okay. And after Online and nationwide, right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au 
cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Okay, Shane McGrath on the line from House of the Ace Action Group. Shane, you're back. You've had a break, haven't you? You've been away somewhere Yeah. Well, I mean, going away isn't what it used to be, but uh, <laughs> I've been on holiday for a while. <laughs> how the, how, I, I think it's a bit, a bit shameful that workers should have holidays, but anyway, you've done it. <laughs> Bloody terrible. What's the news well, from the House of the Ace Action Group, Shane? Well, look, I, I haven't caught the whole show, but I caught the tail end of the, the guest before me, and I think that uh, they were talking about the same thing that I was going to do, so I, I don't want to, uh, like, you know, tread the same ground too much. But... And we had Libby Porter on last week talking about it as well, by the way, so it's... Yeah, right. Well, the, <laughs> the listeners are almost as sick of it as we are. The, um, but, yeah, the, the government's review of the social housing regulation framework has been a, a big thing for us, um, for all the reasons that the other guests will have talked about already. Um uh, I know that you know you were just talking about where the submissions are still available, and that it's true the first round of submissions is closed. But I understand that there are going to be further uh, further discussion papers out that people will be able to make submissions on. I think the first one is out now, uh, but people could probably find out more at the Engage Victoria website. Great, and is that like do you have to make a formal submission, or can you just give input as an individual person with an opinion? Yeah. In- uh, individuals uh, can definitely make submissions to all kinds of, of government inquiries and things. Um, I mean, if if your listeners are older people who'd like to have that perspective included in a kind of collective way, um, HAG is definitely looking to hear from you know older renters in particular, whether in private rental or social housing, public housing, community housing, whatever. Um, you know, we, our, our goal is to represent those, those views, so uh, you can absolutely get in touch. I'll, I'll even give out the phone number if that's okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so you can give us a call on 9654 7389. Uh, you can check out Um We have some working groups and things like that that are set up just so we can you know, keep hearing from older renters about what they need. Awesome. Um, another little conversation that we had with Catherine Murdoch earlier on in the show, uh, we were discussing um, this idea of social mixing as, as uh, like a rationale for... Um, sort of destroying public housing as uh-huh. it is now and then rebuilding it with part public housing, part social housing. Um, yeah. I wondered whether you had any any thoughts on that and, and <laughs> I'm not even actually sure what people mean when they say social mixing, um, but does that have... Yeah, yeah does, I, I mean, my understanding is that the research has thoroughly debunked this idea, which is a kind of ideology that justifies, you know, kicking people out of public housing selling off part of that land, part of that property uh, to private developers. You know, the, the rationale, which Catherine's probably gone over, is, you know, that it's, it's better for the, the poor, benighted souls who live in public housing to mix with, you know, regular people with real incomes who, who can buy their own homes. Uh, but, but it's, you know, it's well and truly demonstrated this, this doesn't work, that, you know, public tenants are, are routinely excluded from parts of the, you know, parts of the nominally mixed, uh, you know, socially mixed properties. Um, I mean, the the problem that we have, you know, part part of the problem is if people do think, well, part of the cause is people do believe that it's a problem that public tenants can become, you know, isolated from other parts of the community. 
is the, the, the idea that's grown over the last decades of public housing as the tenure of last resort. Mm. So not a, not a place for working people, working families, all kinds of mm. you know, ordinary members of the community, but a place that increasingly, because of the way prioritised waiting lists work, is restricted to people who, who do experience the most severe forms of marginalisation and disadvantage. And when you deliberately select for, for only the most disadvantaged, and then say the problem with public housing is that it concentrates disadvantage. You know, you're, you're creating your own problem and then justifying, you know, your own privatising capitalistic solution to it uh, with the problem that you've created. Mm, that's so true. So, again, the, the solution isn't public housing, public-private mixes. The, the solution isn't privatising public housing. The solution is more public housing and better public housing for everyone. Yeah, and I suppose also public housing that, uh, you know, isn't, uh, tiny like it or public housing that like is real uh like has enough space for for people with families and also people that are just like single people so that you know like you're not restricting um who can live in public housing in that way either yeah absolutely i, I mean historically you know lots of working class families did grow up in in public housing Lots of people worked and lived in public housing. That was a perfectly normal situation. Whereas now, you know, some people even have the idea that if you get a job, you should get kicked out of your public housing because it's not for you anymore. Um, the, the idea of, of proper security of tenure is is almost out of fashion. Yeah, it's bloody ridiculous. We just got to listen to correction. Well, I think it corrects. So I think you did correct it anyway, Shane. Uh, social housing regulation review continues. Not over. Second paper just released. Public tenants yeah. can contribute. Well, we said that. So. Uh, but thanks to the caller. Um, but I've, I've actually, I'm feeling quite guilty myself, Shane, and I think all the people who use the Housing with Age Action Group should also feel guilty because a correspondent of the Financial Review has, has fingered the problem with house price increases, the getting out of control, a fact that not canvassed but which may actually be the fundamental cause of extreme house prices is that of human longevity in Australia. So <laughs> it means people like me aren't dying fast enough. We are, I mean, well, Kevin, hop to it. What, what can you say? We, um, we, uh, uh, sorry, I'm quite <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the letter writer can contribute to his own solution there. It's a, it's a she, but um, yeah, she actually goes on to say that it might be a good thing because of other factors. But uh, but that's an interesting. I thought it was an interesting point that we, we perhaps a bit of um, involuntary euthanasia might be a solution to house prices. Oh no! <laughs> can we start with the rich? I think that might. Be <laughs> well, they're better houses, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> And we get more people into them. So that's good. Yeah, that's a good idea. Definitely um, the more economically efficient approach. That's right. Now we're, gonna, we're getting close to end of time, Shane, a bit of a crowded program today. But uh, any other items from the House with Age Action Group we need to know about or events coming up? I don't think we have any events coming up. I mean, the, the main thing, again, I'd say is, you know, we are, there are lots of reviews and submissions and things like that that are happening at the moment. And we do, you know try and keep our working groups active to, to make sure that we're getting informed about what people's views are. So if you're a public tenant, private tenant, whatever, so I'm repeating myself now, um, do get in touch and see if you want to get involved in some of the working groups or just hear about what we're doing. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, excellent. Okay. It was a, um, there was also one of those glossy things that fall out of newspapers about one of the um, providers of, of so-called retirement living 
and they say you know, they provide freedom and flexibility that lets you choose when, where and how you want to live your life. Well, I thought you could do that without going anywhere near them. But um, they then have a series of things about uh, questions to ask about, about funding. And uh, one of them is, um, do I get my money back after I move, if I change my mind after I move in, and has we 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 have a ninety-day money-back guarantee. Asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> some conditions apply. I'll bet they do. Um, but yeah, they... I, I mean the the government is also reviewing the Retirement Villages Act at the moment, and it, you know another thing that you can get involved with Hag if you want some input on. But it's it's just wild to me that the price, the, the way that prices work in retirement villages is just totally unlike any other commodity, any other product that a normal human being would ever consider buying. You pay them this amount of money when you move in. That's not the price. They just hold on to that money for you. And then when you move out, they decide what the price was, and then they give you back the rest of your money, and they keep all the interest in the from the interim. It's just a completely bizarre system. Wow. But you also pay a weekly fee. Oh, yeah, that's right. You also, yeah, you also pay your service charges. You also pay you know, refurbishment costs at the, at the village's discretion when you move out. Yeah, it's it's completely wild. All right. Well, we're nine fifty-seven. We're going to have to finish the show and get ready for for Joe to wander in. Um, but um, Shane, look, thanks for your time. We'll talk again next month, and um, and um, don't go away on holidays anymore. Stay stay All right, where you I are. Promise. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Kevin. Thank okay. Thanks, Shane. Shane McGrath there from the Housing with Aged Action Group. And uh, next week now we're going to be talking about forests, I think, aren't we? I think we're planning. Is that right, Karina? We're planning anyway. There was a thought we'd talk on the fourth Wednesday about various things uh, to do with forests and wood, etc. And the good news is for listeners that Zeb and Meg are going to run the show next <laughs> week and I'm, I'm having a week off next week, which is quite wonderful. Well, I thought you weren't supposed... I thought people weren't supposed to take holidays. <laughs> oh, no. It's not, it's not a holiday. No, this, is, this is called a working holiday. <laughs> uh, damn, I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, that's City Limits for today. Zeb, um, thank Karina for keeping us on the thank air and doing you, a wonderful job. Amazing. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.